So let's go ahead and read our passage together for this morning. Um, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. In fact, um, let's do this. Since um, this is part of a larger passage, it would be good for us to read the entire passage, starting in verse uh, 3. So Ephesians 1, verse 3. We'll take it to 14, but this morning's passage will be from 6 to 10. So Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of, the, of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Now, as we consider this passage this morning, I can't help but to think of the latest Barna poll results that were released just this past week on July 23rd. It was titled, A Snapshot of Faith Practice Across Age Groups. And basically it's measuring percentages and, and believers and practices amongst different age groups going from um, millennials all the way up to elders, uh, baby boomers and, and elders. Well, among baby boomers and elders, uh, between 80 to 83 percent self-identify as Christian. Um, that is a very high number. That's about four out of every five. However, those who say they are practicing Christians, and practicing Christians is defined as those who go to church at least once every month, and they say that their faith is very important to them, that number goes down to 37%, which is a little more than one out of three. Now, among millennials, all those who became adults at the turn of the millennium, 64% um, self-identify as Christians, so that's compared to about 80% for um, elders and baby boomers. 64% self-identify as Christians, which is about two out of three. However, only 22% would consider themselves practicing Christians. That's um, less than one out of, that's about one out of five. So what we see is that Christianity is dwindling with younger generations. We're especially seeing a stark increase in those who identify as either spiritual but not religious um, or atheist. So we hear that a lot. People say that they're spiritual but not religious and a lot of more people claiming to be atheist. But what's interesting is how Christians practice their faith. It actually is pretty steady across the generations. Among practicing Christians of all ages, about 70% said that they have read the Bible in the last seven days. Now, I hope for you guys, that's close to 100%. Um, but 70% said they have read the Bible in the last seven days. Among all self-identified Christians, that number drops to about 42 to 45%. So those who call themselves uh, Christians, um, even including those who are, um, you know, they're devout Christians, we only have 42 to 45% that open up their Bible once a week. Similarly, about 80% of practicing Christians have attended a church service in the last seven days. That number drops to about around 40 to 45% for all Christians. And about 43% of all Christians believe that the Bible is accurate in its teachings. So this is, this is a stat that amazes me. They call people that call themselves Christians, only 43% believe that this is the inerrant word of God. 
Now, for practicing Christians, that number goes up to 65%. And about 61% of all Christians believe that you can only go to heaven by confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. 61% of all Christians. Even for practicing Christians, that number only goes up to 73%. So we have, obviously, an epidemic in America where the majority of people don't understand what Christianity is. They don't understand the requirements of following Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, these numbers might seem pretty depressing, and there are many people who will use these numbers to argue that the church must change. It must cater to a newer generation. It must be more inclusive of other ideas. That is how people will get excited again about Christianity, or that is what we are often told. But if the Apostle Paul were here today, he would absolutely refute that. Christian practice is not dictated by numbers. Paul himself warned numerous times in numerous ways to be aware of the temptation to follow false teachers. Put simply, faith is not cultivated by man-centered practices or man-centered wisdom or ideas or shifts in the culture. Faith is cultivated by a regenerated heart that comes only through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and fosters a love for God. And so as we come back to Ephesians and we continue in this opening section of chapter 1, we're reminded by Paul that our love for God is never better than expressed than through heartfelt praise over the truth revealed by his word. Once again, we are never better, we, we are never more in tune with God. We are never in tune with his will more than when we are expressing heartfelt praise over the truth as revealed by his word. In fact, last week, our own beloved pastor, Wes Smith, he came to me and reminded me that Ephesians, and especially these first three chapters, which are heavily theological, is a letter of superlatives. Now, what do we mean by superlatives? Well, what that means is Paul is not content just to list the blessings of God, but he can't help but to praise God throughout while reciting those blessings. And his language is never flat. It's like when we were in school and we learned the difference between good, better, and best, right? And then even using best, there are other words that we can use as synonyms to describe best. Paul is drawing upon the best language that he can fathom to describe the magnificent depths and riches of our God and what he has done for us. And while we praise God and his son, Jesus Christ, for salvation from our sins, if that's all we can say about what God has done, we miss out on all the marvelous aspects of salvation that has been purposed from before the beginning of the world from before the foundation of creation. We end up robbing ourselves of the understanding of these true blessings that should drive us to praise. And these blessings also help us to see and understand so much of Scripture as well, seeing the intricate planning of God worked out throughout redemptive history. So as we go back into Ephesians, I would ask you to resist the temptation of simply wanting a checklist of things to do. God provided these truths. Paul wrote them. They're here for our benefit. So resist any temptation to think that these theological truths don't matter. Apply your hearts to the word of God, and in so doing, God will apply the word to your heart. So with that, let's jump back into Ephesians. Now, last week, we looked at verses 3 to the opening part of verse 6. And as a reminder, like I said, verses 3 to 14 constitute one sentence in the Greek. It's one continuous thought from the Apostle Paul. And really, the summary verse of this long thought of praise is in verse 3, when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And the rest of those verses going down to verse 14 actually list out what those spiritual blessings are. So we don't have to guess. In verse 4, we're reminded that we were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. We were chosen specifically to be holy and blameless. And God gave us that purpose out of love. In verse 5, we were reminded that God predestined us to adoption as sons. 
And then in verse 6, we saw the purpose of these marvelous truths, which is to move us to praise the glory of his grace. And while verses 3 through 6 really focus upon the blessings to us from God the Father in planning our salvation, verses 7 to 12 emphasize the blessings through God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And verses 13 to 14 finish it off with the blessed gift of the Spirit. So for this morning, my purpose is driven by the need for praise. I want us to be able to say more than just praise the Lord, but that like Paul, we could be overcome with the reasons for praise. So my purpose this morning is for us to dwell upon God the Father's blessings of salvation through his Son, so that you will be moved to the praise of his glory. And we'll begin with the first two blessings that God provided to believers through his son, starting with our first point, which is he provided redemption through Christ's death. Redemption through Christ's death. So picking it up from verse 6, we read, To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Now for the second half of verse 6, it says, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now the first question is, what did he freely bestow upon us? Well, we see very clearly in verse 6, what he freely bestowed upon us is his grace. So God the Father freely bestowed us with his grace. And what does that mean that he freely bestowed it to us? Well, those two words, freely bestowed, it actually comes from one Greek word, keratao. This is from the same root that we get the word grace. So in the Greek, grace and this word for freely bestowed, they come from the same root. And remember that grace means unmerited favor. Put another way, it is getting something good that we didn't deserve. That's what grace is. You're getting something good that you did nothing to deserve. So this verb that we have here in verse 6 is essentially saying to, to, to cause to be a recipient of grace, of unmerited favor. And so Paul is doubling up on the idea of grace. And so what he's saying is that God has graced us with grace. He has freely bestowed grace upon us with additional grace. So we have been gifted with his grace. It's a point of emphasis it's a point of emphasis over what God has done for us, of which we did not deserve. But this gifting is modified by the phrase, in the beloved. And literally, we can say, in the beloved one. In the beloved one. Notably, we see the use of the article, the, which signifies that this is one who is loved most prominently. And who is it that God loved most prominently? Jesus. It would be Jesus Christ, his son. Now, this is an unusual way for Paul to refer to Christ. But clearly, we see this truth in Scripture. Let me read for you Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. This is at the baptism of Christ. Verse 17 reads, And behold, a voice out of the heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then again, during the transfiguration account, Matthew 17, verse 5, reads this. While he was still speaking, the bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. But consider that while Paul is emphasizing the Father's love for his Son, we know that God has demonstrated his love for us as well, has he not? I mean, John three sixteen says, For God, what? So loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. We also saw that earlier in verse 6, that he chose us in love to be holy and blameless. But here, the grace that God freely bestows upon us is done so in the beloved one, in Christ. Now, what this means is that God loved the Son, and he demonstrates it with his grace to us who are in his Son. If you ever felt for a moment and think about this because when we talk about being in his son when we talk about being in christ it's talking about those who are believers it's talking about those who have professed their faith for the lord jesus christ and this is a marvelous truth because if you've ever been through hard times where you think god doesn't love you or doesn't care just thinking about the blessing of knowing his son jesus christ should help you recognize that we have abundant blessings simply because we have professed Jesus as 
Christ, that Jesus is our Lord. That's the whole point of verses 3 through 14 is to show us these blessings. So what blessing of grace do we have bestowed upon us in the beloved one? Well, how about redemption? Redemption. Look at verse 7. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now we see right there in verse 7 that it says, In him we have. Literally, it's in whom we have, which links back to the beloved one in verse 6. In other words, in the beloved one we have redemption through his blood. But that brings up the question, what is redemption? This is one of those words we use quite often. We might even say it, but when pressed for a definition, we might have a hard time clearly defining it. Well, biblically speaking, redemption implies a release, often from like a captive state or condition. We often think of a ransom or a price that had to be paid in order to secure that release. It's almost like being held in prison and there's a price for that person's release. So redemption is the freeing, is the freeing of, of, that, of that person from that prison. But it can also refer to the payment that was made. And this theme of redemption goes all the way back to the Old Testament, particularly with Israel, particularly when you think back to their time in Egypt when they were in slavery under Egypt. Let me read for you Exodus 6, verse 6. Exodus 6, verse 6. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And that is repeated multiple times. You can write this down, Exodus 15, 13. Is repeated there, Exodus 15, 13. We also have it in Deuteronomy 7, verse 8. Deuteronomy 7, verse 8. 2 Samuel 7, verse 23. 2 Samuel 7, verse 23. And Micah 6, verse 4. Micah 6, verse 4. So in these Old Testament verses, we clearly see redemption as being used for Israel's release from slavery. But we don't necessarily see the aspect of a ransom here or payment. It said in Exodus 6, 6 that the Lord will redeem Israel with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. So the Lord used his power seen through the plagues and other signs and wonders to redeem Israel for himself. But when we look again at this verse in Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 7, we find that we have redemption. Not through the signs and wonders of judgment against Egypt, but what? Look at verse 7. Yeah, in him we have redemption through what? Through his blood. Through his blood. Now, the imagery and symbolism of blood cannot be overlooked. It cannot be overstated. Throughout the Old Testament, when Israel went to worship the Lord, whether it was in the tabernacle or later the temple, they had to sacrifice animals. And the blood would often be thrown against the walls of the sanctuary, be thrown against the altar. It created an unforgettable scene meant to remind them constantly of the cost of worshiping a holy God. They were to be reminded that every time they came to worship a holy God, there was a cost of blood involved. There was a sacrifice involved. But here, when the scriptures refer to the blood of Christ, it's not referring to the literal blood of Christ. This is being used symbolically to refer to the life of Christ, the life that Christ gave on our behalf. And we see that while God had freed Israel from slavery under Egypt in the Old Testament, we too have been freed from slavery, but it wasn't slavery to a nation or to people. But before us, our slavery was to what? Sin. We were enslaved to sin. In fact, you can just write this down, but Romans chapter 6 goes into great detail about how we have been freed from our prior slavery to sin, and we are now slaves of righteousness through Christ. But in addition, the life of Christ not only freed us from sin, but Jesus paid it with his life. His life was the cost for our freedom from sin. We see this idea of payment in several places in the New Testament. That's the idea right here in Ephesians 1, 7. But we also see it in places like 1 Corinthians. Let me read for you 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, Paul writes, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. 
And then again, in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 23, 7, 23, he says this, you were bought with a price, do not become slaves of men. But then when we come back to Ephesians 1, 7, we read on, starting from the beginning, it says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now the phrase, the forgiveness of our trespasses, is placed in apposition to redemption, now, apposition is one of these technical grammatical terms that most of you have probably forgotten unless you're a teacher. Um, it's basically when you have two or more words or phrases which are grammatically parallel to one another. One is meant to clarify the other. They both refer to the same person, place, or thing. For example, I could say, come talk to my best friend, my wife. Now, if I say that, I'm clearly referring to my wife as my best friend, but we also see that my wife is a lot more than just my best friend, right? So while we have these two terms in apposition, they don't mean exactly the same thing in every single way. But they just share the same referent. You know, so it's for me to say, come talk to my best friend, my wife. Obviously, my wife is much more to me than that. But when I make that statement, I'm emphasizing the friendship aspect. That we trust each other. We enjoy each other's company. And so in the case of this statement by Paul here in Ephesians, he's talking about redemption, which is more than just forgiveness of sins. But here, that's the aspect of redemption that he's emphasizing. Forgiveness. And the word for forgiveness in the Greek literally means to release or send away from confinement or activity. And when used with sin, it means forgiveness because the idea is that you send away, you send it away with the guilt and consequences associated. That's the idea when we forgive sins, that you're, you're sending away the consequences and, and the guilt that are associated with that sin. <clears throat> In fact, for the Jew, the Jew might think of the Day of Atonement. Going back to Leviticus 16, you don't have to turn there, but in Leviticus 16, you see detailed this yearly observance that they had to do year after year. This is the holiday that's often known as Yom Kippur. They would actually take two goats. And they would draw lots to decide which one of the goats would be sacrificed as a sin offering and which one would be set free. The one that was set free was called the scapegoat. That's where we get that term, scapegoat. And setting it free signified the same forgiveness of sins each year. But there was still a price. Because while that scapegoat would run off never to return, with the idea that that sin has, has been forgiven, has been sent away, there was still the goat that had to pay the cost. So we see the symbols of redemption, both a payment and, and a release. Now, if you have the NASB or ESV, you'll notice that it doesn't say forgiveness of sins, but rather forgiveness of trespasses. L literally, this is to take a false step or to fall. It's a the, the different word than what's usually used for sin. We, we even have signs today over private properties that say, do not do what? Yeah, do not trespass. You know, the idea, don't take a false step. The, the word is a common synonym for sin. It's like when you tell someone you've done wrong, you've messed up, you have committed an offense. We have multiple ways of being able to say the same thing. And so, too, sin can be referred to in multiple ways. But going back to the beginning of verse 7, notice it says that in him we have redemption. We have redemption. That's a present tense verb. It's not past tense. It's not saying that we had redemption. In other words, this reality is a present day reality for believers. So this is not just something that we were given in the past. It's an ongoing reality for us as believers every day. We continue to have redemption through the blood of Christ. We continue to have forgiveness of sins. That purchase that was made that one time and its effects are continual throughout the rest of eternity. You are forever freed from your prior slavery to sin and now you can live as children of God. You are forever forgiven of sins, not just those sins in the past, but for all sins, even those in the present and those in the future time. Now, this is not a license to continue sinning like you have before. You have a new heart. You have a new nature. Your desire should be to glorify God and show the world the difference between knowing Christ and not knowing Christ. The apostle Peter would say that you are free, but he urges us not to use our freedom as sin. Let me read for you 1 Peter 2, 
verses 15 and 16. Once again, 1 Peter 2, verses 15 and 16, Peter writes this, For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. But knowing that we will not be perfect until we reach heaven, we have forgiveness when we do stumble, when we do fall, when we do take that false step. For us, we need to just continually ask for forgiveness when assessing our lives and recognizing sin in our life. Matthew 6, 12, that's the Lord's Prayer. Part of that Lord's Prayer is to forgive us our debts, just as we have forgiven our debtors. And in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, we read, And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a marvelous blessing. What a marvelous blessing to know that though, though Jesus Christ paid that cost and we confessed him as Lord and Savior and we had forgiveness of sins, that that forgiveness is ongoing. We have the redemption today, which means we continually have that forgiveness of sins. It is a marvelous blessing for those who are children of God, for those who are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the promise that our sins will always be forgiven, it ties back to God's choice of us back in verse 4. That purpose that we would be holy and blameless before him. And remember, God did that out of love for us. So that purpose that we would be holy and blameless before God is made possible by the redemption of Christ that we will continue to have by the payment he made freeing us from sin. But on what basis? Why did he do this? What did we do to deserve this? Well, we did nothing. Look at verse 7 again. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses, and at the end it says, according to what? The riches of his grace. The riches of his grace. Now, why did Paul say riches of his grace rather than just say it was according to his grace? Well, the riches emphasize just how significant of an act this was. Just how significant that sacrifice was. It's like the difference between you giving a homeless person a sandwich or a drink. Certainly that's out of grace, but you didn't have to reach into your savings to do that. You don't necessarily need to be rich to do that. But on the other hand, think about what you're willing to do for your own child. Let's say if your child is going away to college, I mean, many of you, I know many people who will take on an additional job in order to pay that tuition to be able to cover that cost. That's, that's called going into your savings. That's called going into your riches to, to show your grace towards that child. And this is God showing the riches of his grace towards us in the redemption of his son because he had to pour his wrath out upon his son, his perfect and holy son who did nothing wrong, who did nothing to deserve that crucifixion on the cross. God sent him to die out of love for us, and it was from the riches of his grace. It's that kind of difference between an act of grace and an act that comes from the riches of your grace. Meditate on that, and when you're trying to remind yourself of the greatness of the blessings in Christ, look no further than to the redemption, and remind yourself just how deep into God's grace he had to go in order to provide his only begotten son to sacrifice him for the sake of our salvation. But Paul is not done with the riches of his grace. Look at verse 8. Verse 8, he says, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Now, this word for lavish, it means to cause us to abound, to to, to have an abundance. The idea is that our cup overflows. Right? Remember, this is a letter of superlatives, and Paul is trying to show you that you've not only received grace, but you have more grace than you can possibly handle. You have it in abundance. Out of the riches of his grace, he has poured it out upon you. And again, as I mentioned, this is superlative language. It's rich language meant to help us see and understand just how blessed we really are. And if you understand the cost and the freedom that comes with redemption, You understand why Paul is emphasizing this another way. But there's something else, too, with us being lavished with his grace. Look at the end of verse 8. 
says, in all wisdom and insight. Now, the NASB places a period before in all wisdom and insight, and in so doing, they connect that phrase to verse 9. But remember, in the Greek, this is all one sentence, so that period is really kind of an interpretation. So while they connect it to verse 9, which would not be wrong theologically, I believe it fits better with verse 8. That's how both the ESV and the New King James have it rendered. The idea is that God has lavished grace upon us with all wisdom and insight. Now, what do we mean by wisdom and insight? Because when it says God lavished us in all wisdom or with all wisdom and insight, the idea is that he has given us wisdom and insight. He has given this as part of his blessing. But what do we mean by wisdom and insight? Well, certainly there's a lot of overlap between these two words. There's a lot of overlap between these two words and knowledge, but they don't all mean the same things. Knowledge we would think of as information, right? We're getting information, and it's us just retaining that information. That's what we would define as knowledge. But when we talk about wisdom and insight, it speaks more to how you would apply that knowledge. Knowing when's the right time to apply it and when not to. Understanding the situations in which you can pull the right kind of knowledge for the right situation. Now, insight in other translations is sometimes translated as understanding or prudence. We don't need to go too deep into the meanings. The the point here is that we've been given the mental facilities that help us in life. We've been given us the mental facilities to be able to praise God for the truths that are revealed to us. Now, in connection with our redemption, we have the wisdom and insight to understand the significance of the redemption. To have recognized our need for that forgiveness. To recognize that our need can only be fulfilled by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's from that day that you accepted the gospel of your salvation. That you recognized your state as a depraved person who needed the cost of Jesus Christ paid on the cross for your sins. It's the recognition that you could do nothing to earn your own salvation. It's the recognition that there was only one righteous man in the history of mankind, and that is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And he is the one that paid that price. It is that insight and wisdom that should allow us never to take that gift for granted. It is that insight and wisdom that should help us to live in light of the hope that's been given to us through the redemption. Are you living in hope today? I mean, I understand that the the world pulls us in so many different directions. We have a lot weighing us down. There's a lot of reasons for anxiety, for worry, for, for even depression and fear and whatnot. But what we have through the redemption is a hope that can never be taken away. It's a guarantee. It's a promise of something in the future that is much better. To many of us as believers, I mean, think about when you were first converted. One of the first fruits that you saw was just how much more clear the scriptures became, right? Oh, that doesn't mean you understand everything. I didn't understand everything, and I still don't. But suddenly, those scriptures made sense in a way that they had never made sense before. Suddenly, you realize that this indeed was the word of God, that it really was speaking the truth. It really was speaking to your life. It really was speaking towards your need for salvation. Not only that, but... Your worldview begins changing. The way you view the world was changing. Your priorities began shifting. Things that you wanted to do before, you no longer wanted to do. And things that were unthinkable before, now suddenly starts to take top priority. I'm sure many of you can relate to that. That comes with wisdom and insight. That comes with a regenerated heart. That comes with a different way of looking at the world. A different way of looking at your life and its purpose. But that wisdom and insight is something that we need to continually grow in, right? We're not given all the wisdom and insight that we'll ever need right away. Paul will pick up on that theme later in this chapter. Jump down to verses 17 and 18 here in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, verses 17 and 18, Paul prays this in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And then verse 18, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? 
You understand that the Apostle Paul, the one that started most of the churches that we read about in the New Testament, when he prayed for the saints, he prayed first and foremost for their understanding of the scriptures. He prayed first and foremost that they would see the riches that have been given to them through salvation. Why? Because it absolutely matters. Because it will drive you to praise, it will drive you to worship. And when non-believers see your life, they will know that there's a difference between those who know Christ and those who don't. But that wisdom and insight lavished upon us can go stale if we're not devoting ourselves to the regular study of Scripture. If we're not devoting ourselves to prayer, to meditating upon these great truths, to using these truths to constantly remind us of the big picture of life our purpose here on this world. We can get dragged down by the worries of the world. We can lose focus as a result of anxieties. We can begin to seek comfort in places that don't truly provide comfort. It could be drinking or overeating. It could be shopping or some form of online immorality. Beloved, you've heard the term counter blessings many times before. We've heard it so much that its meaning, its meaning often gets lost to us. We brush it aside like it's some meaningless slogan, but that sentiment is actually biblical. The idea of count your blessings. See, your mind can only focus upon one thought at a time. And if you're not focused upon the things above, you're going to be focused upon the things below. And the things below will never satisfy you. So when you're feeling that pull of the world, when you're feeling the pull of your problems the pull that comes from your trials, that you're being weighed down. It is then you have to remind yourselves of this great redemption that we have from God by his rich grace, a redemption that came with the price of the blood of Christ, a redemption that, is, that has forever freed us from the sins to which we were once enslaved, a redemption that also came with wisdom and insight. And the re that redemption is not simply just something to know intellectually. It is to be the blessed cause of thanksgiving and praise. It should point us to where we need to go in terms of our thinking, our mindset. It should lift up our spirits, knowing that our greatest problem before God has forever been resolved. It should give us renewed purpose, knowing that we have freedom to worship the Lord without having our sins ever to come back and haunt us. It should help us to see that even when we have nothing, but we have Christ, we have everything. And even if someone appears to have everything but doesn't have Christ, that person has nothing. And we need to share Christ with those people who don't know Christ. That brings us to the second blessing that God has provided. Now, I could easily spend an entire sermon speaking about redemption. But we got to get to the second blessing about, about uh, that God provided through his son. Plus, I don't want us to take several years to get through the letter of Ephesians. So we get to the second blessing that God provided to believers through his son. The first was he provided redemption through Christ's death. And the second is that he revealed the mystery of his will. He revealed the mystery of his will. Continuing in verse 9, we read, He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, and things on the earth. Now, looking at the start of verse 9, we see, He made known to us the mystery of his will. Well, when you read through the scriptures, we have this concept that we call progressive revelation. Now, what does that mean? It means that we have God revealing himself and his plan throughout Scripture. But you'll notice in history, he didn't reveal all of his plan at one time, did he? I mean, think about the first messianic prophecy. It came in the Garden of Eden, right? I mean, that's when God spoke to the serpent and said, The seed of the woman shall crush your head. But at that point, that's all the information that was provided. That's all that was given. You see, there are mysteries that get revealed in their time. Over time, as you read through the scriptures, through the history that's depicted in the scriptures, we see more and more of how the story of redemption unfolds, how prophecies will be fulfilled, how God's purpose will ultimately be achieved. And we see the timing of it all, particularly at the end of the Old Testament. 
several mysteries remained. Many of God's major promises were still unfulfilled, such as the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant. Many of them were still unfulfilled, and it was not clear who, how, or when they would be fulfilled. But all of this revealed, all of this was revealed according to the will of God. That's why God calls it the mystery of his will. It is God's will that provides these revelations in his time. See, we saw God's will mentioned in verse 1 in Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, when Paul identified himself as an apostle by the will of God. We saw it again in verse 5 when Paul said he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. And when we talk about God's will, we understand from this context that we're talking about what God has sovereignly determined to take place throughout all of human history. This is not to be confused with God's commanded will, which has to do with what he expects from us as believers. Let me read for you 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, Paul writes, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's an example of where God's will speaks towards what he expects you to do. God's will of command can be disobeyed. In our flesh, we disobey God's commanded will whenever we sin, whenever we commit trespasses or transgressions. However, God's decreed will, his sovereign will, cannot be thwarted. It cannot be overcome. It is rooted in his sovereign power. It is, has, he has already ordained that will, all that will happen both in the past, present, and future. And in this case, God has willed all along that his son would die on the cross in order to pay the penalty for sins. Now, we see Old Testament scriptures that clearly prophesied of this suffering servant. Isaiah 53 is one such example. But the details had not been revealed clearly. How God would bless the Gentiles through the seed of Abraham had been a mystery, though that was part of the promise going back to Genesis 12. How the future king could also be a priest was a mystery, as you see in Psalm 110. How is it that he could both pay for our sins through death, and then also conquer all enemies of God has been a mystery until his coming. Even the prophets of the Old Testament would examine their own prophecies, wanting to understand more of what had been revealed. In fact, turn with me real quick to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, several books over to the right. You're going to go back past all the letters written by Paul. You'll get to Hebrew, James, and then after James, you get to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Take a look at verses 10 and 11. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Peter writes this, starting in verse 10. As to this salvation... The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. You know what that says? It doesn't say that the prophets didn't understand their prophecies. They were trying to understand it further. They were trying to find more details. They were trying to nail down who would this person be, when would the timing would be. And it's very interesting that Peter says it was the Spirit of Christ that was guiding them in these prophecies in verse 11. But they wanted to know when, when these predicted sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow, when would they occur? But you know what's interesting about this passage? You know what the prophets found as they examined the scriptures, as they examined the prophecies? According to Peter, they realized that in writing down these prophecies, they were not necessarily serving those who lived in that day. They were serving us today. They were serving future believers with their prophecies and not the present day believers of that time. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Things in which angels long to look. 
You know, in that word for longing, that when it says angels long to look, that's the same word we use for lust and desire. Angels firmly, they want to, with all of their heart, to understand this salvation that was being given to us. They long to look at this. But here, what we see is that the prophets wrote these prophecies for our benefit, so that once that they were fulfilled, we can look back and we can marvel at God's plan of redemption from the beginning. We can marvel at all these prophecies that were made and that unlike other spiritual texts that you'll find for other false religions, unlike spiritual texts that you'll find for for all kinds of religions of other cultures and whatnot, we have a Bible that includes prophecies about the coming Christ and not only prophecies, but the actual historical fulfillment of those prophecies that cannot be denied. That is the divine word of God. That is the power of God, and that is wisdom and insight given to us to be able to understand the mystery of his will. But on what basis did he choose to reveal to us the mystery of his will? Turn back to Ephesians chapter 1. On what basis did he choose to reveal to us the mystery of his will? Was it because something we did? Was it because we were more worthy? What was it? Well, at the end of verse 9, it says, according to... To his kind intention, which he purposed in him. Now, according to his kind intention, that's saying according to the kind intention of God the Father, which God the Father purposed in Christ. This kind intention, this is the same word used earlier in verse 5. This kind intention shows that God is not just a distant God who has no care for us as individuals. In fact, I was just talking to Gail Cheatwood before the service. And we were talking about how God has care for each and every individual child of his. He is not uncaring. He is not cold. He is not distant. We've already seen that God chose us to be holy before him. He predestined us to adoption as sons into his own family. He freely bestowed his grace upon us. He has given us wisdom and insight to know these mysteries. But what we see here is that the reason why he made known to us The mystery of his will was out of his kind intention towards us. And why? Why did he do it? He did it to bless us. That goes back to verse 3. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He did that to edify us. I mean, that's the whole premise of this long praise that started in verse 3, that we've received every spiritual blessing. And here Paul is continuing to lay down those blessings that we did not deserve. But these kind intentions, it's important to look again at verse 9 and note that these kind intentions were purposed in him. And who is the him? The him is Christ, Jesus Christ. He purposed his kind intention towards all of us who would believe in Christ. And we take this for granted. We know that Jesus died for our sins. We know that he is Lord and Savior. But even then, we often fail to recognize just how great our Lord truly is. We have an entire Bible that points to him. We have hundreds, thousands of pages of prophecies and promises that are fulfilled in him. We have the benefit of knowing what Old Testament prophets did not know. We have the benefit of seeing the ministry of Christ on earth as described in the Gospels. We see his miraculous works when we look at the scriptures, his amazing teachings, his unbelievable humility, his unwavering commitment to do God the Father's will all the way to death. And we have his example to follow. And you know what else? We see his greatness, not just in what he has done in the past, but also what will happen in the future. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. Now, this may be the most confusing verse initially. I mean, especially if you're reading the NASB for whatever reason, the NASB translators actually added a lot of words into here that were not in the Greek in order to try to make it more clear. But I actually prefer the simpler translation of the ESV when it comes to this verse. In verse 10, the ESV reads, As a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. 
It's a much shorter translation, and I think it gets much straighter to the point. But what is this verse communicating? What we have here in this verse, it's the culmination and the climax of all human history, past, present, and future, all pointing towards its fulfillment in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. What we have here is the culmination and climax of all human history, past, present, and future, all pointing towards its fulfillment in our Lord Jesus Christ. And let's break that down. Starting in verse 10, the NASB reads, with a view to an administration. Now, what does that mean? Well, remember the context here. In verse 9, we saw that God made known to us the mystery of his will. That mystery includes all that has been revealed by Christ, but it also points forward to a future time, specifically the end times, which God has already planned in his sovereignty. So when the NASB says, with a view to an administration, believe it or not, that all comes from one Greek word, which means a kind of arrangement, order, or plan. That's why I like the simplicity of the ESV when it says, as a plan. So the mystery of his will, looking forward, which is a plan. But a plan for what? Well, we read on in verse 10. It says, a plan suitable to the fullness of the times. Literally in the Greek, this says, of the fullness of times. Or the ESV says, for the fullness of times. Well, what is the fullness of times? What does that mean? Well, the fullness of times points to the final stage of human history. After all has been said and done, it all points to Christ. Now, let me read the rest of verse 10. Starting from the beginning, it says, With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heaven and things on the earth. This is talking about a future time when all things are going to be reconciled to Christ. That summing up, that phrase of summing up, that's a mathematical term in the Greek. You understand this. It's like having a a list of numbers or a list of purchases and you want to calculate the overall total. You sum up those numbers to find out what is the overall amount. But that term does not always apply to numbers and figures. There's also an idea of summation or recapitulation. It points to an overall purpose stated briefly and succinctly. It points to the fact that all things will be reconciled to our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me turn to let me have you turn to Colossians. So we're in Ephesians. Um, Go two books to the right and you'll get to Colossians. You're in Ephesians, the next one is Philippians, and then you'll get to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, and Colossians is actually um, seen very much as a parallel book to Ephesians. You see a lot of the same themes, you see a lot of the same flow happening in Colossians that you see in the book of Ephesians. But in Colossians chapter 1, go to verse 15. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Paul here is talking about our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure that all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So we go back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. When it says all things, we have further clarification that we're not just talking about a limited scope. It says things in the heavens and things on the earth. Guess what? That's everything. I mean, think about Genesis 1 1. It says, In the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. That's everything. And we just read in Colossians that all things were created through Christ and for Christ. Let me read for you Romans chapter 8. 
Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 23. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen. Paul says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time were not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers and the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Do you in your heart groan for that future time when Jesus Christ will return? Do you in your heart look forward each and every day, Lord, I cannot wait for you to return that I could be in your presence? Because that is the witness of Paul to believers everywhere. And we have this also in the book of Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. I'll read it for you. It says, For this reason also God highly exalted him, being Jesus Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow for those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, when you continue to study the scriptures, you see that all of human history, not just what has been revealed in scripture, but all of human history will climax and culminate in our Lord. Can you see why Jesus Christ, our Lord, is so worthy of our worship? Can you see why our great hope for the future is wrapped up in his work that he did on our behalf? Can you see God's purpose in it? Can you see that when people ask, what is the meaning of the life? The meaning of life is to glorify God. The meaning of life is to know Jesus Christ. The meaning of life is to have your identity firmly rooted in the person of Christ. And it amazes me that certain cults can actually downplay the person of Christ. They will say he's just a prophet or he's, or he's some sort of lesser God. But beloved, he is the overriding purpose of all of human history. And this is a great time this morning that if you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are here by divine appointment. You are here to understand that our greatest need in life, our greatest need before God, for all of us when we die, we will face judgment before God the Father. And when you stand in judgment before God the Father, the verdict is going to be guilty because we are all sinners. We can't make up for our sins with good works. We can't prove ourselves to be worthy before God. We needed Jesus Christ. We needed him to die on the cross as the perfect God-man on our behalf in order to pay for our sins. We needed him because without him there was no hope. There was no justification. There would be no redemption before God. There would be no way that we could stand before God and be holy and blameless. What it requires of you this morning... What it requires of you is to recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. It requires you to make this confession, to repent of your sins, and to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning, I would beg you not to ignore this call. Not to ignore the condition of your, of your soul. The fact that you are headed towards the wrath of God if you do not repent. If you do not recognize that this is the only way to God. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And Acts 4.12 says, there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Do not ignore this call and do not leave here without talking to myself or one of the deacons or someone here that you trust as a believer. Let us talk to you. Let us pray with you. Let us show you the way to salvation. But you don't even have to wait for then. You can confess Jesus Christ now. You can even confess him even at this moment and repent of all your sinful ways and commit to following him. Now, I'll just end on this note for the rest of us. Have you guys heard of catechisms? 
You know what catechisms are? Catechisms are basically a series of question and answers that were intended to be memorized. That they were intended to remind believers through, through memorization of the great truths of the Bible. There is no catechism that is more well known than the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And the very first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is this. What is the chief end of man? In other words, what is the purpose of man? What is the meaning of life? What is our purpose on this world? And the answer is short and sweet and simple. It says man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Amen. Let me say that again. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Well, there is no greater way to glorify God. There is no greater way to honor and, and to, to glorify God than to worship his son. There is no better way to enjoy God than to remember and delight in the blessings provided to us through his son. That's the whole point of this opening in the book of Ephesians. We have the redemption in Christ that forever frees us from the bondage of sin, from the penalty of sin. We have the mystery of the ages revealed to us in Christ. And it's meant not just to be understood intellectually. It is meant to lift up our spirits, to sing praise and glory to the God and say, Hallelujah, praise the Lord that I am a child of God and I know your plan of salvation. Hallelujah for the blessings and the grace that you continue to give us even to this day and that we have a promise that can never be taken away. We have a kingdom that can never be shaken. We have, we have an eternity to look forward to in which all sins will be taken away and we will be able to live in perfect bliss and peace in the presence of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Do yourself this favor. Remind yourself and remind each other each one to the other of these great blessings. Do that now and do that forevermore.